0: Tony Duchesne here, welcome to episode 113 of Drinks with Tony. Our guest is co-director of Vinyl Nation, a documentary about all things vinyl. Go to VinylNationFilm.com to find out how to see it before it leaves on December 1st, VinylNationFilm.com. And um, it's just in time for Record Store Day, happening this Friday, the day after Thanksgiving record store day a beautiful holiday the best holiday in the world that has the only paganism is in the vinyl of bands that are satanic that you'll buy december 2nd i'm teaching a free online creative writing workshop on zoom for the los angeles public library at 6 p.m pacific time join us by going to lapl.org that's lapl.org search for the event for the Los Feliz Branch Library, December 2nd, 6 p.m., and we'll be on Zoom. This is the show.
1: Hey, this is Kevin Smokler, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get
0: on the drinks with Tony
1: show.
0: Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Kevin Smokler. He's the director of Vinyl Nation, the movie. And he's the author of three books. The most recent one is Brat Pack America, a love letter to 80s teen movies. Kevin Smokler, how are you? <laughs> Tony, it's great to see you again. It's, it's great to lot. see you. I know. It's, I haven't seen you in person in about a year, which just. Mm-hmm. I, I think we kind of see each other once a year. So I feel, I feel okay. And then mm-hmm. when I don't see you in person, then I know something's a little off kilter in the universe.
1: Yeah. And it seems to rotate between your town and my town. And your your, your town and your former town, yeah. It's like, because we both lived in San Francisco, but I see you more that I don't live in
0: San Francisco and I don't know why that is.
1: It's very strange. Like we did not run into each other here and then you moved to Los Angeles and we started seeing each other a bunch. Yeah,
0: it was like a romance.
1: We could have been hanging out
0: every weekend, but we wanted to, we wanted to make it difficult.
1: We exactly.
0: Wanted, we wanted to create some conflict. In yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In minute 75, we became friends. <laughs> Speaking of minute 75, you are really thinking in film terms. For the time being. Yeah. I mean, I, I, not forever, but for the time being. Yeah. And I mean, and, the, and that's what I love. I, I really
0: love the storytelling of documentary filmmaking and i, I just want to pick your brain about it because first off first off when was it you go you know what we got it you directed this or did you co-direct it i can't
1: co-directed remember. it with my with my co-director chris boone yeah okay so when did you guys go you know what we need to do this what how did that happen uh so when i was on book tour for brat pack america chris chris and i went to college um i'm college together i'm two years older than him so we didn't overlap much um but uh, when i was on book tour he got in touch with me and he said uh hey you know what i live in albuquerque new mexico i'm very looped in with the film community here uh which which at the time was basically everybody who worked on breaking bad right um and the um and uh i know you know i know you wrote a book about movies let's book our book about 80s teen movies. Let's book ourselves a screening of the breakfast club at the local art house cinema. We'll do a Q and a afterwards. You'll sell some books. We'll eat some green chili. It'll be a few days. And it's, I was like, sounds great. I hadn't, I had only been to Albuquerque as the airport you land to, to go to Santa Fe. And, um, and so I figured I'll, I'll see the town, I'll have some green chili, I'll connect with an old friend, and, and it all worked out like magnificently. Not only was Chris really good at putting an event together, but we really hit it off. Um, and so we did that four or five more times with different movies each time, and somewhere in there he's like, hey, you know what, um, I want you to see the film I made a few years ago. And I said, I'd be glad to. And so he, um, he showed me this, this feature-length film he had made called Sense, C-E-N-T-S, um, which he describes one way, and I describe as Mean Girls meets Wall Street. Um, it's essentially about a group of teenage girls who set out to rig the penny fund drive in their, in their high school and uh and it's a great movie like like it's a really great like like dark yet sweet comedy it's about, it's about 87 minutes long the cast is fantastic and i was like god this guy really knows how to make a movie and so
0: did Flash you for, did you, I was, did you yeah. have to did you watch the movie with him or did he like just get said oh good because like <laughs> I, I really hate being put on the spot where it's just like hey want to watch my movie and you're all sure and then they want to watch it with you and you're like oh god
1: if it's bad, I, I can't sit here, oh, and yeah. here if it's bad. No, it's like that's like eating. let's like eating, standing in a kitchen while someone cooks and then eating their food. Like, yeah, you don't want to. No. I um uh it it it's a it's 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 an unfair proposition for everybody involved. So that's great. Um, so you got to see it alone, make your assessment. The assessment yeah. was this is great, and then you get to tell them. Yeah, and so flash forward to like March of 2018. Uh, I'm at a writer's residency in Illinois. And I'm kind of trying to figure out what to do after this Brat Pack book and not coming up with anything. Um, And just casting about, I I called Chris and I said, hey, would you ever want to do something together? And he said, sure, what? And I said, I don't know, make a movie? And he goes, okay, about what? Do you have a script? And I was like, no, I I write nonfiction. So a movie for me is going to be a documentary. Um, and he goes, about what? And I had, like, precisely one idea for a documentary. Like, I, I, I actually didn't think we were going to get that far in the conversation. And he said, and I said, well, I've been wondering for the last 10 years why Vinyl Records came back and what it means. And he goes, well, okay, like, like maybe we can make something out of that. And we just started, because we've, we don't live in the same place, we just started talking on the phone once a week. Um, and we did that for about six months. And at some point, we were both like, okay, listen, this is going to happen or it's not. Like, we got to be grownups about it. And if it's going to happen, we got to think about raising money and, you know, when it's going to come out and work backwards from there. And so we were both like, all right, well, let's try and make it happen. And either it will or it won't. And here we are two, a little over two years later. I love that. I mean, I just love that it starts with a phone call, an idea.
0: And then, and then the other thing people forget to do is to just keep meeting about it. And mm-hmm. it's th- that's the important part. It's just like there's no structure. I mean in your early meetings you're probably you're probably not banging out storyboards or anything. You're just like you're just, You've got to throw the ideas around and just have conversations is that is that how it went
1: yeah I, I get very intimidated by by big projects like I I have a lot of admiration for people who can be like be like wanted to write a 600 page novel saw every word of it in my head <laughs> sat down with a bottle of bourbon and did it and I'm like I, I I'm like good for you man because I'm like I'm like I I like I, I say that and I'm like forget it I'm going back to bed like um, yeah I like to. If that were, if I had conceived of the six hundred page novel, I'd sit down and I'd be like, I'd be like, okay, number pages one, two, three. good enough. See you tomorrow. Yeah. And then, um, and then I'd come back four, five, six. And if I could see the thing going inch forward, inch forward, inch forward, I feel like I feel like it will eventually get done if I frame it that way. Uh, totally. And the thing is, I feel like in every
0: single project I do, I think it's going to be a certain amount of work. And it turns out to be monumentally
1: larger. And if I would have known, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like, if you start with that knowledge, you're going to psych yourself out before, before it even begins, um, which is, I have to break, I mean, it's not like, it's not like you can, you know, willfully ignore the larger picture because there's, you gotta, you can't think about stuff, you know, until the day it's due, um, or you'll never get that done either. But like, but the idea of like, of like, okay, today, I'm just gonna, today, I'm just gonna kick the can down the road a little bit more, you know, eventually, it'll get down the road. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I feel I feel most productive and successful when when working on stuff that way.
0: So so when you guys went, all right, well, um, when you guys were like, all right, we have our money together. Or I don't know when you when did you start going okay what's how are we going to frame this story did you did you kind of come together with look here here's the beats we want to hit or was or was there more like here's the people we need to talk to and then kind of come in with a with
1: the narrative those kind of things kind of both happened early on and at the same time uh, we were like we kind of structured it like an album we were like okay there's here are the here are the tracks and here's when the thing flips over and and that and, and so we structured it like that and and that's not how the movie ended up that you can see the skeleton of it inside our movie but the movie the movie definitely changed in post production as all movies do um and then based on that we were like okay who do we talk to to tell that story and we had like six groups of people We're like we, we have to talk to musicians we have to talk to people who run record stores we have to talk to people who Work at record labels, uh, we have to talk to people in manufacturing because vinyl is like a real physical thing it's not digital it's not imaginary it's not uh, and then if we're going to tell the story of what's happening in vinyl now, we have to tell the, we have to use, have characters who are reflective of that somehow so in this case it was it was like okay, we need like young people we need people who were not around when vinyl was the only way you could listen to music um, and then in order to sort of have that story cross over from those two eras in vinyl. We're like, okay, we need parents and kids, or we need like great uncles and nephews and nieces or someone like, like a a cross generational relationship for people who grew up with vinyl in its original era and then in its Renaissance. And those were kind of the categories. And based on that, we said to ourselves, we said to ourselves, okay, we we don't know, like, first of all, we had a no celebrity rule we're like, we're like, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna use famous people to tell this story, because we had sort of backed ourselves up against it, calling it Vinyl Nation, that it had to be like representative of something pretty big uh, and diverse. So we're like, okay, no famous people, it's gotta be ordinary citizens, and then who? And based on that, we said, okay, if we are submitting that the comeback of records now leaves us chronologically speaking in kind of the post high fidelity world, then it can't all be like, you know, like 30 year old hipsters in Wicker Park in Chicago. Like it's gotta, it's gotta be, it's gotta be men and women and white folks and not white folks and gay folks and straight folks. And like, and it, 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 if, it, if it's truly a, a Renaissance, it's got the, the, the people we have in the movie have to reflect that. And so when we started asking around to talk to people, we're like, tell us someone who owns a record store that's over 75. Tell us, find us someone who owns, a, who, owns who works at a record store who's under 16. Or find us like, find us, like, find us a gay Latin, Latina woman who works at a record store. I mean, we, we would ask the question that boldly, like over and over again. And that's eventually that's how we got who's in our movie and, and everybody is a degree of separation away from someone we knew in the first place. And that's so much fun. I, it's, I, I'm, I think it was
0: a recent movie about punk rock kind of just came out and I can't even remember the name of it, but I turned it off halfway through. Cause I'm like, these are the same people I've heard talking about the same things since the 1980s. And it's the same talking heads. And I don't care anymore. But yeah. when you have, when you have like just this fresh passion, there was this. There was this. That lovely uh, kid. Um, he, was, yeah, I think, he was like nine or ten years old in your movie. Who was all excited
1: about David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that great? Yeah. How old was? Do you remember how old he was? Or? Uh, Elliot was eleven when we talked to him, and yeah. I think he's twelve now. Um, yeah, and he's um, he is the he is the son of someone I went. I grew up with. Yeah, um, and that, that's how we found him. Yeah,
0: I was. It was just so beautiful to see his passion for it. And i And I think you know,
1: I look at him, and I'm all the kids are going to be all right, <laughs> isn't that, isn't that, yeah I mean it's so true and and I love what you said about this 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 punk rock movie you just saw the the, the beautiful thing about any book or documentary or any project about mu- about music is music is always richer than we think it is, and so like if we settle on you know what. Chimamama, Chibbe, uh, uh no, I'm sorry. The Adichie called the danger of a single story. Um, we are we are looking the other way at, at, at what is special about music. Um, the example I like to give is is the the, the the six part series Sonic Highways that Dave Grohl did, um, where he went to a different city in America, talked about the musical culture there. And Dave Grohl grew up in suburban Washington, D.C., in Virginia, right at the time, and was a D.C. punk rock kid, was, you know, Fugazi and Bad Brains, and and during that white-hot era of D.C. punk. And Dave Grohl, so Dave Grohl could have made a movie about his three favorite bands from when he was, could have made a, a series about his three favorite bands from when he was 12, and that would have been the end of it. And he would have been like, job well done, good for me. And Dave Grohl actually poked around and sat down with Ian McKay and all of those guys and were like, so what were you, basically asked, so what were you listening to back then? And Ian McKay's like, Ian McKay's like, you know what, nobody ever asks us that. And you know what, we used to hang out with the Go-Go Kids we used to hang out with Trouble Funk and those people, and it's like you know what? We were all a bunch of stupid teenagers. We were all doing stupid teenager things. They were throwing shows over here. We were throwing shows over there, and we're like, and we're like, fuck you. We're bringing we're bringing the we're bringing 150 black kids from northwest to the, from northwest to our show, and they were like, well yeah, f you too. We're bringing a bunch of scrawny white kids like Ian Mackay to our show, and I'm like, that is so much more an interesting story of what was happening musically in washington dc in the early 1980s than what than what i thought dave Grohl was going to do so shame on me and good for him like like that is that is how rich music is and, and, and like we need to we need to like marinate in that like <laughs> yeah and, it, and and also remember that you know even our
0: heroes they have mm-hmm. their heroes that yeah. everyone they, there's just a passion there's just this bubbling passion when i was younger you know and i was doing like i just loved it because they were talking vinyl uh, sorry i just smash cut there but like they're talking vinyl and i remember when i was at kfjc the college radio station in the bay area in 1990 i started there like january of 1990 um but the rule of thumb was no cd releases vinyl only if oh, wow. if, if you didn't service the radio station vinyl if you didn't come out with a vinyl release it will not be played and they were really hard on that for a few years. No, no CDs at all until finally it was just like, we've got to relent a little bit because Blank Band, who we have the whole back catalog of, all they have is a CD release. And, and that was just, we were just so depressed about that because it was about the vinyl. It was about the two turntables. It was about how much you can mess up by queuing a record wrong. Uh, by how it, <laughs> yeah. it had to have a lot of, it's, it have, I did a Ramon special you know their songs are like a minute and a half, th- two minutes long. Right. All vinyl, and I <laughs> oh did an alph- I did every song alphabetically, and I had to have a couple of double records because in order to cue it up and oh, be yeah. announcing, it was nuts. I was exercising for four hours on that.
1: Show. I mean that's some Grandmaster Flash shit. You know when you're <laughs> when you're doing when you've got to change records that fast. Totally, yeah.
0: Yeah, and and why did I veer in all that direction? I forgot what I was talking about. We were talking about. um Uh, your
1: time at kfjc um right i i I made it about me for a second but i I had something else there
0: earlier i can't remember Mm. oh well
1: yeah we were just talking about how the 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 assumes narrative we have about music is always less rich than than the actual narrative of 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 a period of time in music yes and the passion thank you Mm. oh my
0: god you're my co-host not only (laughs) my guest you're my co-host thank you yes the the um just the bubbling passion that we had and then then you find the bubbling passion of what you know younger generations have, and just mm-hmm. to just, just getting that snapshot across the board. Like the um, what was the there was a Lat, what was a Latina group of uh, ladies in your
1: uh, oh yeah the Chulita Vinyl Club. they're amazing. The Chulita Vinyl Club is a group of all uh, of all uh, Latin women um, who, who DJ exclusively with vinyl. Um, and they started the, the founder, who was in our movie, Claudia Sands, started um, when uh, when she lived in Austin. She was a she was a recent college graduate who loved music, and and you know she uh, she grew up in she grew up in San Antonio in South Texas. But like like if you're like if you're like a music freak and you go to college within a hundred miles of Austin, you end up in Austin eventually, which is what she did. Um, and she um, and she started she started she would, she would go to a ton of shows. And she saw people DJing, and she's like, "I can do that. I got cool taste. I got good records." Um, and the vinyl part of it came up, came about because she had a bunch of vinyl from her parents and grandparents' generation, a lot of stuff that hadn't migrated to to CD and digital releases. And she's like, "Well, I want to make this part of my sets." And she she was she was prescient enough to see that she had something there. And so she's like, "Okay, so the deal is." Is all Latin women DJing, um, but what they DJ, what mu- uh, DJing with vinyl, and what, but what they DJ is totally up to them. And so now the a Vinyl Club, and, and these are, and these are, these are DJs in their twenties and thirties. These are not, these are not, nostalgists for a bygone music technology. Um, and uh, and so now they have seven chapters in in Texas, California, and uh, in Arizona, I believe. Uh, and they have an incredible like SoundCloud channel where they put their remixes on, um, and um, like yeah, I, 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 so I've my, my wife and I'll put them on sometimes, like when we're making dinner, and you can hear you'll hear like you'll hear like border Spanish music mixed with mixed with contemporary hip hop, mixed with like like fifth you know fifties Southern California you know Richie Valance kind of stuff mixed in with doo-wop music and girl groups from that era and stuff. Uh, it, it really just it, it it really just shows you how sort of multicolored and multifaceted this thing we call American music is, um, and they're 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 an amazing chapter in our movie. It was really it was really a pleasure to 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 get to know them and their groups. And that's the it, that's so much of the beauty of
0: like that because they're curating music and they're and they're going into deep cuts. And that's the pro, that's the problem with this whole streaming. Let's just put it on the stream. Let's give you a choice of everything. And what do people do? They go alternative '80s. Boom and they get all they get is the same echo chamber of what they what you know there's not like i want to just be educated constantly but i do want someone who knows better than me to curate and so diving into their soundcloud station that's like something where you just go wait a second who was that and i want to go down that wormhole and we used to have to do it at record stores i would i mean when i was a kid i'd be like walk in there i remember getting the first sex pistols record you know when I, in the 80s When I found out who they are and I'm like, I think these guys, I think I'm supposed to have this record. And (laughs) Uh I'm sure the guy at the record store was just like, Oh, we got another one, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then after that, I'm all, Oh, wait a second. The lead singer was in PIL and they're actually around now. Okay. What do I get now? And just getting records without even knowing a song on them, just like throwing that crapshoot and trying to, trying to feel cool. I, I, there's just, I don't know. How are kids going to have that anxiety? of walking into a record store (laughs) because that anxiety is so rad. I remember that anxiety. And then you get to what you talked about the film where, you know, people flipping through records. Like I used to see those guys flipping through records. I'm like, what do they know that I don't know. And then later on, I was just one of those guys. And it was, it was
1: almost like a graduation of how to navigate in a record store. Well, there's on the one hand, I do worry that this this thing I've made a movie about, which is which is clearly a phenomenon, or we wouldn't had it, we wouldn't have had enough material to make a movie about. It's clearly a phenomenon. is is not it, it is a significant phenomenon, but you would be hard pressed to say that every 16 year old listens to music that way, not even close. And so there is a group of 16 year olds who will grow up thinking that listening to music is pressing play on Spotify and whatever comes up, comes up. And that, that to me is kind of tragic because I have a Spotify account and I have a title account and I have no shame in either of those things. But to me, it's like the old card catalog at the library, like like you tell me I'm supposed to be into sticky little fingers, that Irish punk band from the eighties. Okay, well, I'll go I'll go to the card catalog and look it up and I'll play a few tracks. And if I like sticky fingers, who I do, I'll be like, perfect, now I gotta go buy it on vinyl. because <laughs> um, I've I've auditioned it and now it can proceed to the next round. <laughs> um, yeah. and that's how that's how I use streaming services. But what you say about curation is dead on. Um, And I think the role that record stores play now has shifted in a really positive way. This is the optimistic part of this story, which is to go into a record store now and have someone scowl at you for picking something up is weird, is, 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 is iconoclastic, is an anomaly. It does not happen very often. Now... You go, into, um, you go into a records, you go into Contact Records in Oakland, this tiny little shop right by the MacArthur BART station. And the guy just sits there and grins at you. The whole, Andrew, the guy just sits there and grins at you the whole time. Hey, how you doing? Um, and I'm like, and I the t- the first time I walked in, I picked the Baby Huey record up because uh, it was lying. And I was like, "What's this?" And he just like he's like he's like sit here under the learning tree, young man. And I did. And he talked for ten minutes about the Baby Huey record. And three minutes in, I'm like, "Just just take my money, all of it, please." Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and that's I think that's what the experience is like now. Like there's really there's um, there's an amazing thing that happens where like. Where we talk to people in the movie, we we not in the movie. We talk to people around who've just seen the movie, and and they we talk about their first time. And their first time is not the first time they bought a turntable or went into a record store, or went digging or anything like that. The first time is when you go to a record store, you pick something out of the crate, and some complete stranger looks at you, looks at you, and you don't know if they're gonna like mug you or something. Like complete stranger looks at you and says, "You have to have that." yeah you're like how would you know like we've never met before they're like no trust me you have to have that and you're like okay and you buy it and you go home and you get there and you're like oh my god i was just like visited by an angel like like something like that like this complete stranger who i'll never see again convinced me to take this record home and it's it's beautiful like like that's those are the kind of amazing things that happen in record stores now. And I, I don't know because like I wasn't I wasn't into vinyl when like Bleaker Bobs was around in New York, but I have a feeling that was that was uncommon at at, at Bleaker Bobs, like like where the where the prevailing culture was to sort of sneer at you when you when you came in the door.
0: Yeah. I, I remember all, I remember the conversations I used to have at record stores all the time. You know, I, when I growing up in San Francisco, I would like go to San Francisco when I was younger, you know, we'd go to, um, you know, uh, reckless records or whatever, you know, just we go there and just be like, okay, I, I remember, I liked a Nick cave guy. Let's see if they have any of that. And mm-hmm. just like, go, and just be like, you know, bring it up to the front. And that is, yeah, it's just, your movie. Just like, you're just, it's, it's bringing me nostalgia. And I don't want to
1: scare the <laughs> kids away from it because they're going to be like, oh, no. old
0: man, talking about the old stuff, you know? Yeah.
1: There's a, there's a great moment that we had when we were doing the interviews that didn't make the final film, only a little bit of it did. It's when we were talking to Sandy Bittman, who owns Park Avenue Records in Orlando. And he said, he said to us, I knew something was changing in the world of records when like high school kids started coming in here on dates, like, and of course you'd get like you'd get like the fifteen year old high school boy who wanted to, you know, explain who Joe Strummer was to like his to like his date and stuff like that. And we kind of had a chuckle about that. And I'm like, okay, so 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 first of all, like like what do you do if the guy is royally messing up? And two, like how do you spare his poor suffering date from having to listen to this crap? And he's like, well, usually what happens is like, they'll come up and they'll have a copy of London Calling or something like that. And we'll be like, and we'll be like, oh yeah, you know, like, so this is The Clash's third album. And like, you know, like, so did you know, did you know what was happening in London around this time? And inevitably, like, like, like the woman part of the couple will be like, no, tell me. Oh my God, good. Someone else is speaking besides me. Like, no, tell me. And so like, so like, then Sandy or one of his staff will take the two of them around the store and talk about London in the late 1970s. They'll end up buying three more records. And at the same time, like, like, like the, uh, the, uh, the, the young woman walks away with a pleasant memory of this date as opposed to like, <laughs> as opposed to like being, being hectored and lectured by some 15 year old. Um, and I'm like, man, that's great. Like, that's like, that, the, 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 that story's got all the elements to it, you know, like, um, what's and great about it. Yeah. At the same time, um,
0: what's important about that story is there, uh, th- those two people might procreate. And if they if, <laughs> exactly. if they if they let that guy lecture on and on, mm-hmm. there wouldn't be that person existing in the world. They came in, they said, "Hey, we're going to help you out here." And yeah. then mm-hmm. before you know it, five six years from now, there's a baby, and it's because of that record store guy. And that exactly. store guy is
1: probably responsible for a lot of babies being made. Yeah, he's he's told us like he has he has owned the store long enough where like a guy will come in and be like, a guy will come in and be like, oh shoot, like this is my last trip to the record store for a while. We just had a baby. I don't know when I'm going to get any more free time. And he's like, all right, man, see you later. And then six or seven years later, the guy comes in with a kindergartner at his side and is like, Okay, we need some Mickey Mouse club. We need, some, <laughs> yeah. we need some Yeah, we're like we need some yo Gabba Gabba. We need like disco duck. We need uh-huh. and he's like I got you and then and then you know and then pretty soon like that kid is 12 and is and is you know getting dropped off at the record store and is yeah. being like is, is being like don't follow me in here. Like I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, Yeah, exactly. It's like dad's the most uncool thing in the world at that yeah. age.
0: Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. important. Mm-hmm. When, so what was, what was post-production like? Like, yeah. How much material did you have? Uh, what do they call it? The rough assemble?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we had, we shot the whole thing on 4k, which is, which is what your, your Netflixes and your, your streaming services kind of expect these days. Um, so we shot the whole thing on 4k, which takes up a ton of memory. Um, as you can imagine, um, so much that what we would have to do at the end of each shoot week, because we would shoot one week on and one week off, um, is we'd get all the memory cards from the camera together and then we would have to load them into hard drives, a, a, a duplicate set of hard drives. And then I would take one home to California and Chris would take one home to New Mexico. And we did that. So God forbid, someone lost their luggage on a flight or something. We didn't, right. we didn't you know, have a whole week's worth of footage, uh, uh, you know, going to hell. Um, so, um, so, but we shot. I think we we had we interviewed forty five people, and then we had two full days of, of at one at the Austin Record Convention and one at Record Store Day, where we interviewed you know several dozen people. I think the total was twenty five terabytes worth of footage, and like you know, I think the first assembly was like eight and a half hours long, yeah. Um, which was which was nuts. I mean, and even before that, Chris and I had to go through every bit of footage and decide what needed to be passed on to the post-production team and what didn't uh, because you're just you know you're just wasting your post-production team's time and your money if you have them do that so right um so uh so we um so yeah originally it was eight and a half hours long and then it was about five and then like we got it down to about two hours and 10 minutes and we knew all along that it needed to be 90 minutes that that Mm -hmm. was the right length for a documentary and um and we were, um, and we, once we started on that last cut, we actually, we got to 90 pretty quickly. And we had a couple of conversations where we're like, do we really have to leave that out? Can we move this around? Can we move this around? But we, we the, the, it was easier at the end than I, than I thought it was going to be. And I, and I think it really helped that Chris had made movies before and I hadn't. And so his, he was coming at it from the point of view of the filmmaker and I was coming at it from the point of view of the audience. And so he was able to say, this looks great and this doesn't and see things that I couldn't see. And I was able to say, I'm bored here. Um, and uh, and we're, losing, we're losing the person watching um, in a way that he couldn't see. Interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. Did you deliver the, was it the two and a half hours to post production team or did you deliver a larger chunk? We, um so the post-production team was based in Austin and Chris and I did f- four separate trips to Austin over the summer and fall of last year. And so we started with eight and then they would, we started with eight and then on one trip and then we'd cut it uh, in the course of that like weekend, we would spend there. We would cut, we would, um, we would go through it and we would make our notes and then they would f- mess around with us and send us the next cut. Uh, and then we would watch it and make our notes, and then we would meet with them in person, and then we'd go over it in person so each each successive trip we took to Austin the movie got shorter and shorter uh and then so we were we were always sitting there with them in person, deciding what was going to be removed uh, and um you know to get to the final ninety minutes
0: yeah yeah that's mm-hmm. cool when you when you're when you're doing production in so many different
1: cities oh did you have to hire locally for like lighting and sound? How did that yeah work? Yeah, so we, we decided, like, the, the, the smallest crew we could get away with was five people, um, which which was Chris and I, uh, a, a cinematographer, a sound recordist, and a production assistant. Um we would have loved to have had, um, a DIT to, um, uh, the, to manage the cards and the, ma- and the hard drives and all of that kind of stuff. Those people do, those people do God's work because without them, like, like the whole, everything you filmed can go up in smoke if someone like forgets to put a card in or something like that. Um, so, uh, we, but we didn't have the budget for that person. So whenever we were on set, um, if we had to pause to change cards, um, Chris was positioned at the back of the shoot with a laptop, downloading everything as we were filming. Um, but the only person we could afford to um, to be with us for all six weeks of the shoot um, was was Sherry Cock, our cinematographer. Um, and we knew we needed that because we needed the movie to kind of look the same the whole the whole time, despite yeah. shooting in fourteen different cities. Um, and then each place we would pick up a local sound recordist and production assistant. And, and we were very lucky. Like we, we we hired, there are good film crafts people in, in every place we filmed. So, so we, we were very fortunate.
0: Yeah, because just watching it, it doesn't sound like there would, you know, it's the things you like, the things you kind of don't notice is great like you don't notice like a lot of sound differentials so you just assume you had the same sound guy the whole time and that's just a huge testament to all the different sound people you have
1: yeah and we were really lucky our 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 post-production sound guy was a guy named eric friend who was who in an earlier life was the keyboardist for the band spoon and um and we were and he was he was a genius like like I, I didn't know anything about post production sound and Chris is like okay we're just gonna sit in a studio and we're gonna listen to the whole movie straight through in this amazing soundproof speakers all over the place kind of setup um and just pay attention to how the movie sounds and not only did it sound consistent but there were all of these nuances in the in the in the the the, the audio track of the of the film that I hadn't noticed that Eric brought out yeah we were. We were re- Eric was amazing. We were really lucky. Did
0: you have to do any um uh, what do you call it like what what do they call it not a little bit of like folly or sound effects or anything on some of it to- <laughs>
1: I think oh, he did. I think there was a yeah. couple of points he did where, where we wanted to get, like, the sound of record scratching or we yeah, had, like, yeah. a, a crowd scene and we wanted to hear some of the voices in the background. I, I don't specifically remember how he did that, but, like, there was a couple of choice moments in the movie where Eric added that, and it really, like, yeah, made the whole thing that much better.
0: So so what was, what was your... Uh what were your anxiety and nerves like for your first production day? Like what, what, what city were you
1: in on your first production day and what was that like? We, our first, our first shoot was in San Francisco. Oh, our, easy. That's easy travel. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And you know, Chris, like Chris, you know, slept, you know, slept on the floor at my place and like, and, uh, um, and we uh, and we had Sherry at a, at a, at a, at a, airbnb in Daly city and um and we um and we, which is and great our,
0: for airbnb by the way it's, it is yes it's like prime, <laughs> prime real estate in the Bay yeah Area. absolutely
1: and so we 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 actually our first day of shooting was at amoeba and um and we were and, and they were really nice to sort of let us in like an hour before the store opened uh, because what we quickly realized is like if we were going to film in record stores, record stores have to have music playing or else it's depressing to walk into a record store and you can't get good audio if there's music playing over the, over the, in the background. And so most record stores were willing to let us in before opening time, but unsurprisingly, people who work in record stores are not morning people. So we were always asking them to come in earlier than uh, they, than, than they normally do. And they were really nice about it. Um, but it was um, the filming at, Amoeba, filming at Amoeba the first day was hard. Uh, Mark Weinstein and Tony, his, his manager, they were great. Um, but it is, it is hard to make, and, and this is something we did in our research, it is hard to make like the interior of a record store look visually interesting. Because if you don't shoot it right, it just looks like rows and rows of squares. Um, and so we, that was really hard. That was a hard shoot for our first day. Uh, and my anxieties around that were like, um, we're like, are we, we have a lot of footage of people sitting down and talking, which is most of what our movie is about. Is it going to be, are we going to have this kind of struggle creating an interesting framing for them? And is it just going to look really boring? Because like, because fundamentally, is it going to come down to a lot of people sitting down and talking and try as we might, we're not going to be able to make that very interesting. Um, And so we, that was, that was my big anxiety. And what we would do, what we ended up doing is, um, is we would arrive wherever we were doing an interview we would, we would. I would introduce. I, I, since I was the one doing the interviews, I would introduce myself to whoever we were speaking to, um, and um, and I would say, give us about ten minutes. And Sherry and I would walk. Chris, Chris would set things up with the with the sound with the sound person and the PA, um, get them going, and then Sherry and I would walk around and we would say, look where we are. What's the most interesting place to for? for the person to be while we film them. And what we were keeping front of mind is we had to say, listen, records are real things. Records are physical objects. And so we can't, we have to shoot someone so they look like they are in physical space because it reminds us that records have a footprint. Um, We can't shoot them against a blank wall. We can't shoot them in a corner. We have to see where they are. And so, if you'll notice in the movie, everybody is shot at an angle so you can so you can see where they are sitting in the room that that um, that surrounds them.
0: That's interesting. Like, especially something the you know having only an hour to sh- to shoot even B roll is mm-hmm. monumentally uh, crazy. Um, did, did Chris and the DP have time to go in before and just check out Amoeba and kind of see like angles or what they wanted to put together?
1: What we would do is we would set it once we, once we figured out what the shot was for the interview, um, Sherry and the, and the sound recorders and the PA would work on getting the lights and all the equipment set up. I would talk to the interview subject um, and just keep them entertained. And then Chris, once Chris would walk around uh, and look for B-roll. And then when we were done with the interview, we had about a half an hour in each place for B-roll. So we had about 90 minutes. We had about two hours total. Um, uh, counting setup, breakdown, and B roll, and and then we would walk around and say, and Chris would say, okay, if we were an amoeba, he's like, okay, be sure to get a shot walking in the door so you can see the long aisles. Be sure to to get a shot of people people digging, people flipping through the vinyl. Be sure to get a shot of the stacks, you know, the used stacks underneath the the, the main. uh uh, gondolas um and that kind of thing you know just interesting just anything interesting visually that would capture the sensation of being in a record store that was like that big so so chris came up with most of those and a lot of uh, and then the rest we kind of found on the fly
0: yeah i didn't even understand really uh i I understood b-roll but when uh when we were shooting jesus jerk they were they were they would just the the minute they were resetting a scene and turning it around Um, there would be the camera two guy would be shooting other things and I'd be like what's going on and so much of that ended up in the film they needed the they it was just i i was just like oh that's
1: how it's done that's pretty that's all yeah. I knew. <laughs> yeah you, you never have enough like like you you, you always you're and, and and you're shooting b-roll after whatever you were supposed to shoot that day so you're like oh come on can't we just go home for christ's yeah. sake yeah. and you're like but you never have enough and and at some point like when we were in the middle of principal photography chris was like we have to remember we can never have enough shots of turntables, of needles being lowered on turntables, of people's hands flipping through records, of records being pulled out of sleeves. And I was like, of course we have enough of that. Now, sure enough, like we got to post-production and we were like, and and we we spent more time than we should have being like, being like, okay, okay, where, where is that, where is that shot of someone pulling a milk crate of records out of the trunk of their car? Like, 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 we had a lot of that. Like,
0: that's so much fun. I, but you know, up until I left San Francisco, I was doing DJ night to Edinburgh Castle. I used to. Do you remember Emmy's Spaghetti Shack? Yeah. I used to DJ when they allowed DJs there. Um,
1: At the bar that was that yeah was next door. Yeah, I think. Um, God, I, I think they. Either Emmy's moved to a bigger spot. They did, yeah. They moved to a big. Okay, I, they either moved to a bigger spot. or They expanded the 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 food into the bar. Um, like, but, but it's it's a bigger operation now than it than it was formerly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was those, but it was you. They were great. They were just like vinyl only. There was nothing was, in the. It was because I uh, at the time I was married and we lived around the corner and we just I just talked to them. They're like, wait, what? You, who are you? You do what? And I'll be like, oh yeah, do you? can i do a dj night here and they're like yeah i just bring crates of vinyl they would plow me with alcohol and food (laughs) and and carrying vinyl when you're like (laughs) wasted out of your mind when you're carrying crates it's just brutal um yeah but uh i don't know why i went there but you know they had to stop doing it because the uh entertainment licensing uh includes djing so they cracked down they couldn't have DJs anymore, which I
1: don't know. The,
0: the beauty of Emmy's Spaghetti Shack was going there and having somebody curate their night of, you know, vinyl. It wasn't cranked up loud. It was, it mm-hmm. was just like it was part of the whole Emmy's experience. You go yeah. there, yeah. There's, there's just a guy stuck right next to the bar, spinning, and it was, mm-hmm. uh, and it was so much fun to like be there and do that. I remember um, one. Th- there I just there's you know I have flashbacks of a couple times, but it's just fun when you see like. A whole restaurant like eating and not giving a shit, and all of a sudden you see a few people turn around <laughs> when you drop the next one, and I dropped Absolutely. um, I had spinal tap, big bottom, and there was this lesbian couple sitting there, and I dropped that, and the minute they heard the first bass, they're like, yeah, <laughs> I'm
1: like exactly. You live for those moments, man. Like yeah, the, yeah. Um, that stuff is super fun. Yeah, um, I we we had, we had we had a couple of possibilities of going to film people DJing and it didn't quite work out with the schedule. So all the DJ footage we have is, 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 is B-roll and fair use stuff, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah, that would have been, that it would have been super fun to just like both from a musical and a, and a filmmaking point of view to just like sit behind the decks with someone.
0: Yeah. How was that? um, How was that getting, um, because did you ha- did you have a music supervisor where that they did like the legal coverage or whatever? With-
1: yeah, we did. Um, we we knew early on that we would want to spend money on the thing we mostly wanted to spend money on was crew because we were pretty inexperienced to it and we we were going to need we wanted the movie to look great and because it's about records we needed it to sound great um, and so um, we knew we would have to hire a really good cinematographer and a really good music supervisor. And we had been talking to Morgan Rhodes just about appearing in our movie as a, as an interview subject, because I had heard her on on KPCC in Los Angeles, and I was a big fan of the podcast she did about great albums called Heat Rocks, uh, and she has a fantastic voice. Um, and um, and so I was like, she'd be a great interview subject. And we started we we talked to her on the phone, and it was clear that she was going to be fantastic. And so we just booked a day with her when we would be when we were filming in Los Angeles and and Chris was like maybe we should just ask her to be our mor- our music supervisor because we knew she was a music supervisor yeah. and I'm like yeah but Chris are you kidding like like she's Ava DuVernay's music supervisor like we're not going we're not going to afford we can't afford her like are you kidding um, i mean she was she did the music on Selma and on Dear White People for Christ's sake like this is it's not the league we're playing in and um, and he's like listen we're just going to ask be, uh, on the premise that we know that she's out of our league, and, but it would be rude not to. And we're like, all right, fine. And so we went ahead and we asked and we said, we know we can't afford you, um, but we wanted to ask because we are really glad you're going to be at our movie and we respect you as a music supervisor. And we didn't want to be rude. And she's like, listen, I really like your project here's generally what I charge um, and we can make it work under the following uh, under the following conditions. And what Morgan was able to do is she was able to, um, she was able to kind of, she would know better than me, but she was Mm -hmm. able to kind of, she was able to kind of license tracks through, um, through libraries and through, through, through uh, sort of, sort of in bulk as opposed to, as opposed to one at a time. And Basically, th- this is what you pay a good music supervisor for. They can come up with a way to get the right music in your movie at the price point that you um, that you have. Uh, and, and she was and she was brilliant at it. Like like we we didn't really know what we wanted the mu- the movie to sound like, and and we came to her and we said. So she asked that question. And we were like, um, the best we can come up with because the movie spans seventy five years of the history of. Re- records, but it is about something uniquely happening here in the present, is get us something that sounds like the past, present, and future all at the same time. And she goes, okay. And she goes, how about something like Janelle Monet? I was like, yeah, that sounds like the past, present, and future all at the same time. She's like, I'm not going to be able to get you Janelle Monet, But in that spirit, we're like, sounds great and she did. And, and, and she would send us like, like reams and reams of tracks and we'd go through them and we'd say, this is interesting. This isn't. And from that, you know, music supervisor kind of mind readers. They're like, they're like, we yeah. can, t- I can tell what you're looking for. Um, and she was, and she was fantastic at it. She's, she, she and our composer Catherine Bostic who Chris had worked with before were the reason the movie sounded so good. And the sound is just
0: beyond important. It's almost more important than the visuals when you really like just get down to it. It's it
1: really is. Yeah, yeah. we 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 were we were sunk, and we knew that if the movie didn't sound great,
0: yeah. And I love uh, like music supervisors, and they go. I think they go to like libraries that handle the licensing for a huge, you know, for that bulk of library. And those people mm-hmm. are pitching music supervisors, and they know the deep cuts in their library that are like, oh wait you need David Bowie, but you want, but here's the amount you want. Okay. We got bang, 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 bang. And they'll give you five options and four of those are going to be better than your first song. It's crazy.
1: It, it is a unique art and, yeah. and, and, and the people who do it have a special, a special ear for music that, that the rest of us don't have. Like, and it's, it, it, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, it was really, we learned so much from working with Morgan. It was remarkable to see her work. Isn't it, I, That's what I
0: love about this kind of being around the film stuff. Is seeing the craft of other and and how passionate they are. Like even a lighting guy on a sitcom, you you sit there and you look at him, and this guy's like orchestrating. It's you could just tell he's
1: this is he's honed in. It, it, it's yeah, I, it, it, it's powerful.
0: It it's just so creatively juicy you
1: know it's incredible it's incredible and it exists at all levels of filmmaking you know sherry who had done so much more work on sets than we have we used to talk about this when we were on these like long car trips going from one location to the next we'd be she'd be like she'd be like think about it like like can you imagine the last scene of *Rebel without a cause without james dean wearing that red coat Like, Like, someone made a choice for that red coat, and like that scene is burned into your memory forever, in part because of that red coat. Like, that's what a great costume designer does. Like, um, he's like, You should see, like, like, you should see how, like, like, you should see how impossible it is to get good light if you have to film someone in a sewer pipe. And then you should watch and then you should watch, you know, a grip and a gaffer and a lighting director set up, you know, set up a light to make it work. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it, you're really watching like 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 artistry and craftsmanship at work. And and we were just like, oh fuck, yeah. Like, that's so yeah, good. Yeah yeah, 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 that's why I love kind of that's why I've
0: loved like being in LA because I could sometimes be around some of that and it's just it makes me feel good as a writer, you know, I'm just like sitting there going, Oh, they're as passionate about that as I am about the written word. Yeah. And it's yeah. so nice to see. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Are you going now that you've, now you've had the documentary film experience, are you going to do it again?
1: I would love to do it again. And, 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 and I, I like to tease Chris cause I've got three or four more documentary. ideas. Yeah. I like to tease Chris and text him in the middle of a, Busy workday that we're both having, and be like, so for our next movie, and he'll be like, and he'll, and he'll usually be like, yeah, 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 we're not, we're not thinking about that right now. And he's, and he's <laughs> absolutely right. Um, I, uh, I think in, in a perfect world, I, I will probably, I don't know, I, I, I kind of like to, I heard an interview with LL Cool J like 15 years ago where he's like, where he's like, I'm focusing on acting for a few years. Then I'm going to go make an album. Then I'm going to go make a movie. And I'm like, I'd love to, I'd love to, to, to be where LL Cool J is at and just be, and be able to do, and be able to sort of do, do books and movies equally in that way. Not at the same time, obviously, but like. Um. Hashtag LL Cool J.
0: <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Tony. It was so great to talk to you and see you again, even even if it's in a, like a little window. But like, yeah, really a lot of fun.
0: Kevin Smokler on Drinks with Tony. Check out his film, VinylNationFilm.com. Actually, the film is called Vinyl Nation. To see it before it goes away on December 1st, go to VinylNationFilm.com. And I'll see you next week. I hope you have a lovely... uh turkey day some of us are all alone on the turkey day all my friends are on the zoom on the turkey day hey what are you gonna eat on turkey day i'm just gonna have some peanut butter cups peanut butter cups and a lot of wine and an epsom salt bath drinks with tony see you next wednesday